Could you imagine a world without any physical gestures or symbols? No handshakes, no hugs or kisses, no wedding rings, no special songs, no flags, no dances, no salutes, no birthday cakes or candles, no flowers or chocolates on Valentine's Day. What? (laughs) Could you imagine that? No, I can't either. Symbols open up to us a level of reality for which words prove to be inadequate. For example, a man's wedding ring. It says, I love my wife and I'm committed to her until death do us part. I can say that, but the symbol explains it all with a single glance. All throughout the Bible, God used physical things and symbols and actions to communicate his love and his truth to us. For instance, when God wanted to express his love for Noah and all creation, he not only said it, but he put a rainbow in the sky. When God wanted to demonstrate his glory among his people, he said it, but he also led his people to build an elaborate tabernacle. When God wanted to show us how awful sin is and how much forgiveness costs, he had his people pick out one of their best sheep, bring it to the tabernacle, and kill it. And then sometimes the blood of that sheep was sprinkled on the people. Now that sounds kind of gross and yucky, doesn't it? (laughs) But I promise you that if you were there, if you were there, You would not leave saying, I don't know if God hates sin very much, or I don't know what forgiveness means. You would know. You participated in it. You watched it. You heard it. You felt it. You smelled it. Why does God give us symbols and gestures and signs? The God we see in the Bible loves us, and he wants us to know him. Not only to know about him, but to trust him to trust him with our whole heart. I think it's really a mistake of our modern world to assume that we can grasp God with verbal analysis and clear thinking alone, apart from deeper than rational symbols, actions, and gestures. In the second book of the Bible, called Exodus, one of the most important symbolic things God told his people to do was to celebrate the Passover. So every year... And our Jewish friends still celebrate it. They would gather in Jerusalem to remember the story of how they were slaves in Egypt. But God, in his wonderful love and amazing power, came down and set them free. So ever since that first Passover, the Jewish people have celebrated it by eating, drinking, telling stories, and acting out rituals. That is where our story about Jesus begins today. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Follow along as I read Mark 14, beginning in verse 12. This is the word of God. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city And a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Now we are ready to see what Jesus did on that Passover to turn it into something else, to turn it into what we now call the Lord's Supper. What Jesus does makes it the perfect meal God prepared for us. The perfect meal God prepared for us. That's the title and the heart of this message today. The perfect meal God prepared for us. Let's continue this story of Jesus in verses 17 and 18. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. We have to understand how chilling these words sounded to Jesus' original hearers. Imagine that you're eating a big extended family dinner. It's Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter or your birthday. And everybody is happy, clinking glasses, telling stories, enjoying the moment, enjoying the event, enjoying the food. All of a sudden, the father stands up and he announces, I I want to let you know that I got a death threat in the mail. And in a few days, I will be murdered. Oh, and by the way, one of you in this room is the perpetrator. That would put a bit of a damper on things, don't you think? You'd wonder, who who is it? Who's the creep? I'll get him. You'd probably respond just like the disciples did in verse 19. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. This is how sinners act. This is how sinners act. They howl in protest and innocence. No, not me. I'm not a creep. I wouldn't sell you out, Lord. I'm a good person. Here's the ironic thing. A disciple named Judas will fulfill Jesus' prediction. But by the time Jesus gets nailed to that cross, every one of his disciples will abandon him. In fact, Jesus told them they would. In verse 27, he said, you will all fall away. Just like that. You will all fall away. Judas betrayed Jesus with his greed, but the other disciples will betray him with their weakness, their laziness, their fear, their cowardice. But in spite of their failure, betrayal, and sin, we only hear the howls of protest and innocence. Surely you don't mean me. You still hear that today. The spouses in a conflicted marriage howl, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. The person caught in an addiction, especially a socially acceptable one, says, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. The child says to the parent, Surely you don't mean me, Mom. Dad, no, he started it, not me. No, it's her turn to do the dishes, not mine. Surely you don't mean me. We all clamor to prove we're the right ones, the good ones. We're certainly not the sinful creeps who cause all the problems and betray Jesus. But as we protest to prove our innocence, we miss the fact that this meal 
has always been prepared and reserved for only one group of people. Sinners. The not righteous people. It's not for the righteous. It's not for the good people. Never forget that. This is a meal. This Lord's Supper. This is a meal perfectly prepared by God for sinners. Real sinners. Sketchy people. Flawed people. Spiritual failures. The broken ones. Me. You. The Lord's Supper will always be attended by and offered to people like us. People like me, who betrayed Jesus and abandoned him again last week, yesterday. And I might betray him again tomorrow. That is not to minimize my sin. Actually, it makes me see and feel even more how awful how extensive, how deep my sin goes, while at the same time magnifying God's love and forgiveness and grace toward me. Let's skip down to verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. We're going to think about the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to experience the Lord's Supper. I want you to notice the very physical nature of all this. Jesus took the bread. He held it in his hands. He touched it. He gave thanks to God the Father. He broke the bread, and then he gave it to his followers. Very physical. Notice that Jesus did not say, now... I want you to analyze this bread. I want you to think good thoughts about this bread. I I want you to ponder this bread. No, Jesus said, take it. Eat it. This is my body. When Jesus said, this is my body, what does he mean? He means, this is my person. This is me. This is me. This is my life. Jesus was asking them to feast on him, to draw life from him, to somehow get him into us. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we're feeding on the life of Jesus Christ. Those disciples around the table with Jesus, they would have understood it that way. Had not he told them that he was the bread of life that had come down from heaven? The same God who came and worked with compassion and power to set his people free at the Exodus was now here. Here, right now, available to love and set his people free from their sin once again. I want you to notice in verse 23 what Jesus did next. Then he took the cup. Again, a very physical object and symbol, but also just a very ordinary Passover cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Again, they didn't analyze it. They didn't do an eight-week study on it. They just, they drank it. The rich, deep, bittersweet wine burning as it went all the way down from their lips to their belly. 
Now, of course, words are important here, too, because Jesus gives an explanation of the cup. In verse 24, he says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Now, if you were sitting around that table, those words would have been like a jolt of electricity running through your body. The covenant. This. The covenant. They knew what the covenant was. Everyone at the table knew the old covenant, in which God had said, I will be your God. And you will be my people. A relationship with God himself. That was a good covenant. Really good covenant. Except that it kept unraveling on our end of things. But God himself kept fulfilling and promising a new covenant. Not a replacement covenant, but the fulfillment of the first covenant. So... Imagine those first followers of Jesus, they're they're at the table, they must have looked each other right in the eye and thought, did we just hear Jesus correctly? Did you hear what he said? Did he say the new covenant is here, now, in effect? The new covenant? Deeper forgiveness, deeper power? Notice the key words of this covenant. This is my blood. Jesus says, poured out for many, for you. My blood poured out. That is what creates and seals and keeps this new covenant relationship that we are freely given with God. The blood of Jesus Christ poured out for us, for our sin, to cleanse us and to bring us back to the Father. We, just, we have to realize how dumbfounded those first disciples of Jesus must have been. Sometimes we just get too familiar. We've heard this before. You heard this for the first time. You, you would be awestruck. They knew. They knew that the centerpiece of the Passover was the lamb. But here in Mark's gospel, as they eat the supper, the lamb seems to be very unimportant in the meal. It's not even mentioned. Why not? Why not? Because Jesus has become the true and final Lamb of God, slain for the sin of the world. And so, with such beautiful simplicity and and clarity, the Lord's Supper answers this question. What is God like? What is God like? For followers of Jesus, the answer becomes so very clear. God is love. He loves me. In my sin, he loves me. He loves me. In Jesus, God gave himself in love for us. He poured himself out for us sinners. God is love. This is shocking. Even scandalous. We are not the righteous ones. He's not doing a favor for some good people. This is a holy God pouring himself out in love for sinners, rebels. This is, it's scandalous. We're, we're not the righteous ones. We're all in the same boat. We're sinners. We howl and protest, surely you don't mean me, Lord. I know you mean him. I know you, I know you mean her. But surely you don't mean me, Lord. 
But we are the very ones who have betrayed him, turned our backs on him, ignored him, lived our lives without him, fought against him, acted as if we were him. And yet here he is, still sticking with us. And not only sticking with us, but offering us a meal. And not only offering us a meal, but giving his very life for us. This God sacrificed himself for his people. Jesus, the Lamb of God, and the living God at the same time, gave himself in love for us. What does that do for us? How does the Lord's Supper change our lives? How does it call us to respond? Well, first of all, it calls us into a faith-filled life in Jesus. A faith-filled life in Jesus. This is a life that receives its life from Christ, who wants to pour out his life for us, upon us, into us. John Calvin, a famous Christian writer and pastor and reformer who lived about 500 years ago, used a very simple analogy to describe this. He said our lives are like a cup with a lid on it. And even when God pours out his love upon our lives, nothing gets in. The lid is on tight. I want to illustrate that for you. What do I have here? Kids, if you cannot see this, just move where you can. So what do we have here on this little table by the pulpit? Well, we've got a punch bowl, we've got a We've got a glass inside it and a a lid on top, all right? And then we've got a pitcher full of water. This is going to be fun. The water represents the love of God. It's going to be poured out. And the lid, the, the, the glass, represents my life. So here we go. We're going to take the love of God and we're going to pour it out on my life. There we go. How's that working out? Houston, we have a problem. What's, what's the problem? It's not going in the cup. That's right. The, the love is being, the water's being poured out. The love of God is being poured out. And it's being poured out on my life. But I got the lid on tight. I'm doing all right without God. Water can't enter the glass. John Calvin said that faith is like taking the lid off. By faith, we tell the Lord. I'm removing the lid of my sinful ways, my self-will, my self-sufficiency, my stubborn pride. I want you, Lord Jesus. I need you, Lord Jesus, as my Savior. Pour out your love. Pour out your forgiveness upon me now, Lord Jesus. I'm ready to receive you now. So that's what faith does. It takes off the lid. Now now we're going to pour some more of the love of God here. If we're going to pour the water, what's going on now? It's filling up that glass, isn't it? And it's overflowing. Yes, it is. It's full to overflowing. And there's always more of the love of God flowing into my life. You see how that works? This is a beautiful thing. We have to come to the Lord's Supper with an open life. Open to God. Open to God being God in our lives. Open to God's grace. Open to God's forgiveness, open to receiving from Jesus the salvation and the life that he wants to pour into us. Secondly, the Lord's Supper calls us into a poured out life for others. You see it illustrated there. There's a, there's a pouring out and it's just overflowing all around us. 
When we come to the Lord's table, we remember that life is not just about receiving. It's about receiving so that I can turn around and pour out God's love upon others around me. It's just splashing everywhere. There's so much of it. We have this great privilege, this great call, great challenge. We become poured out people for the sake of others. And that's especially true as we pour out our lives and we pour out the love of God in Christ for the poor, the broken, the brokenhearted, the forgotten, the most marginalized and vulnerable members of our community and our world. We don't just come to worship services, Bible studies, and small groups to get fed. Yes, we do get fed. Praise God for that. He feeds us with his word. But we also come as the body of Christ to be filled up and then just to overflowing and poured out for the world around us, the world he came to save. So the Lord's Supper is a meal that feeds the forgiveness and the transformation of sinners through the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not a ritual for the so-called righteous ones or good people. So as you come to the Lord's table today, come first of all to receive. The Lord Jesus is here by his Spirit. Where do you need his grace? Where do you need his forgiveness, his new life, his power to be poured out upon you? Let him feed you in those needy, broken places of your life. But second, as you come to his table, let the Lord Jesus search your heart. As you ask him, Lord, where do you want me to pour myself out these days? Who needs the truth, the love? the forgiveness, the life, the hope of Jesus Christ, just as I do. Open your life to Jesus. Come. Take the bread. Eat the bread. Take the cup. Drink the cup. Receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then go. Go and pour yourself out for others. And never be the same again. Amen? Amen. We've talked about the Lord's Supper. Uh, We've seen that it's the perfect meal God has prepared for sinners like us.